Some years ago, there was a uh, meeting at Oxford University of uh, a group of religious scholars. And uh, it, was a, it was a little conference on uh, comparative religions, comparing Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and so on. And so one of the items of discussion at this uh, little conference was what, if any, belief is unique to the Christian faith? Is there anything unique about Christianity? And so the folks in the discussion began by eliminating possibilities. Well, what about the incarnation? Somebody suggested. Well, other religions have different versions of God's appearing on earth. So no, incarnation is not unique. Well, what about resurrection? That's got to be it. Well, again, uh, other religions have accounts of return from death. Christianity isn't unique in that regard. And so the debate went on, and it become, became more energetic, it became more heated, until C.S. Lewis, great uh, writer and scholar, as some of you know, uh, was going by where the room was, and he heard kind of the, the intense debate, and he walked in the door, and he said, uh, so what's the rumpus all about? And he discovered that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among the religions of the world. And he said, oh, if that's it, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And what is grace? The, the word is incredibly common in our culture. Uh, I read somewhere that the song Amazing Grace is played or sung in the United States some 10 million times every year. Who has a clue what it means? We use the word constantly in a Christian setting. Hey, our church, Grace Lutheran Brethren Church. We use it constantly in, in a Christian setting, but perhaps with very little understanding. What I mean by that is heart-grabbing hold of understanding of what it means. So what is grace? If you put it in its simplest terms, grace is simply the unmerited favor of God through Jesus Christ given to the totally undeserving, given to sinners. But you know what? That Bible teaching of free grace is counterintuitive. It is countercultural. It is counter everything in our society. I've written resumes. Maybe some of you have done that. And when you write a resume, what do you do? You tell people all the great stuff you've done over the years. Here's why you should hire me. Here's why I'm great. And so when you get the job, why do you get it? It's because you had a shining resume above the others. Or you think of applying for college. Maybe you want to get a scholarship. What do you do? You put in everything you were involved in in high school, let's say. I mean, all the clubs you were in and sports teams you were on and activities you were involved in because you want to get the scholarship. And you'll get it if you can show great stuff that you've accomplished. Then you'll be rewarded for it. That's how the world works. That's how society works. 
Back in uh, 1973, uh, J.I. Packer wrote the book Knowing God. If you've never read it, it has become a Christian classic. I would encourage you to get a copy of it and read that book. Uh, simply entitled Knowing God, and in chapter 13 of the book, it's simply, he simply entitles it The Grace of God. And uh, what he argues in the beginning of the chapter is that grace is indeed the distinguishing mark of the gospel. But what he says, there, is met, there are many people in the church who are not really gripped by grace. You have some kind of a foggy intellectual idea of what it means. But J.I. Packer says, how many people in the church have actually been like laid hold of by that truth of grace? We all pay lip service to it. But how small a percentage in Christendom how many people actually have laid hold of, actually believe in grace in an internal grab hold of it, not let go of it kind of way? Here's what J.I. Packer writes about folks in the church. He says, their conception of grace is not so much debased as non-existent. The thought means nothing to them. It does not touch their experience at all. And then he says, talk to the people in church about the church's heating or last year's accounts, and they are with you at once. But speak to them about the realities to which the word grace points, and their attitude is one of deferential blankness. They do not accuse you of nonsense. They do not doubt that your words have meaning. But they feel that whatever it is that you're talking about, it is beyond them. And the longer they have lived without it, the surer they are that at their stage of life, they do not really need it. So why is there such indifference in the church to the whole matter of grace? You can understand it out in the world at large, but why in the church? And Packer argues in that great chapter on grace that there is an indifference to it on the part of the average churchgoer because that person, he says, does not understand, has not grappled with, has not come to terms with four great truths that the Bible presupposes before you ever get to grace. There are four underlying doctrines, and because we do not have hold of those, then grace is very cheap. And it's more of a word and a concept rather than a reality. Let me lay these four out for you. I'll use his words from the chapter. Here are the four great truths that you need to grab hold of so that you might understand and internalize grace. Number one, the moral ill desert of man. That's the first one. That we are complacent, he says, about our grim spiritual condition. We're sinners, but not that bad off. And we do not take our spiritual, darkened, lost condition seriously. And God doesn't take it all that seriously either, we sort of assume. We don't understand that we're totally fallen. We don't understand that the image of God has been destroyed. We don't see ourselves as we really are, as incorrigible rebels against God and everything divine. We don't see ourselves as totally sinful from A to Z, and we're certainly not deserving of God's eternal judgment, that's for sure. 
And so if you do not understand, that's the first underlying doctrine to grab hold of what he calls the moral ill desert of man. I used the term last week, total depravity. That's what he's talking about. Here's the second one. He says, here is the second doctrine that underlies grace, is the retributive justice of God. We don't understand that full retribution for sin is part and parcel of God's character. It is, he says, the very law of the universe. And we regard the Bible's teaching that God is a God of burning holiness and that his wrath continually blazes against all sin and all unrighteousness. We back away from that. And when you do, you'll never understand grace. We believe there are things we can do, there are responses we can make, there are ways that we can live that will cause God to turn favorably in our direction. If you think that, you'll never grab hold of grace. That's doctrine number two. The third one, to understand grace, is what he calls the spiritual impotence of man. The idea is there's nothing we can do, period, to come into a right relationship with God. We, we reject the idea that we're totally unable to do anything to repair the breach between us and God. You know, there's some steps we can take, some initial steps, and God will meet us halfway, or however we look at it. There are things we can do, there are ways we can live, there are decisions we can make that will cause God to turn in our direction. If you think that, you'll never understand grace. The total spiritual inability of each person. And then here's the final one, the sovereign freedom of God. Most people think God owes them something. Most people think God owes me a chance to be saved. He doesn't owe you anything. No, not even a chance to be saved. Yes, we have sinned, but God is somehow bound. He kind of like has to um, offer me salvation or show me his favor. God needs to do nothing of the sort. The scripture teaches everywhere that God does not owe it to anyone to stop justice from taking its full irrevocable course. If you don't get that, you'll never lay hold of grace. Here's what he writes. He says, only when it is seen that what decides each man's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins. That's where it starts. Not us deciding, God deciding. Only when it is seen that what decides each man's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins and that this is a decision which God need not make in any single case. It's only when you understand that can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. Why we hold grace so cheaply, why we sing about it and have no clue what it means is because we don't really lay hold of these four underlying doctrines. Once you do, then you can sing amazing grace and actually mean it. Because you know that it really is an amazing, incredible thing. All right, so why does God save us then? Well, it has nothing to do with who we are. It has nothing to do with how we live. It has nothing to do with the resources we possess. It has nothing to do with anything that God foresees in us. The scripture gives the rationale for grace in the Old Testament. Because you think about in the Old Testament, you think of in the times of Abraham, how many people groups were on the face of the earth? How many millions upon millions of people were scattered across all the continents of the earth? And what did God do? He decided to choose one little obscure group and give his word to them and only to them and not to anybody else. 
All right, so why did God choose for salvation one little group and nobody else on the planet? All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Notice the logic of grace. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number. He's giving like many examples he could give. It wasn't because of one, two, three, four. He gives one of them. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Do you see the logic of grace? What does this text say? Verse 7, the Lord set his love on you. Why? Verse 8, because he set his love on you. That's the reason. God loved you because he loved you. That's the logic of grace. God decided to shower mercy on you because he decided to shower mercy on you. God poured out his loving kindness upon you because he decided to pour out his loving kindness upon you. That's the logic of grace. There is no merit. There is no worthiness. God doesn't act because he foresaw something good on your part. No, not even faith. There is nothing conditional. His salvation, his justification of sinners is rooted in eternal grace from beginning to end. And that grace comes to us because the Lord Jesus Christ has taken our punishment upon himself and paid his debt in full. Let me illustrate. Um, I've got in my office um, a, a sermon set by uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Um, many years was pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, a whole string of tremendous pastors over the years. Um, you think I preach long series of sermons. He started preaching on Romans in 1949, and the only reason he quit was because he died in 1960. That's a lot of years on one book. Um, but I remember hearing him on Christian radio. He died in 1960, and as a family, we always went to Sunday night church, and, uh, but the Christian radio station in Minneapolis, KTIS, which was a whole lot better years ago than it is now, that's my editorial comment, um, they always had um, replays of Dr. Barnhouse's sermon. So we had Christian radio on. My wife will tell you, I mean, I don't think my folks ever turned it off except when we had family devotions and you went to bed. It was on all the time. And so after Sunday night services, we'd hear a conference pulpit was the name of the program, and it was replaying Dr. Barnhouse's sermons. So not only did I listen to my dad on Sunday night, got home and we sat down and I listened to Dr. Barnhouse for a second Sunday night sermon. Anyway, he tells the story in um, one of his sermons on Romans 5 about his conversion at the age of 15. And uh, the way he tells the story, uh, there was a speaker coming to uh, the area, when he was a young boy, 15 years old. And uh, this speaker had been a drug addict. But he had been converted to Christ. And he'd been called into the gospel ministry. And he was preaching in various places. And so because of this man's background, Dr. Barnhouse, not doctor in those days, 15-year-old, you don't have a doctorate yet. Um, Donald Gray Barnhouse wanted to hear him. Thought it'd be interesting. So he went to the service, and the message from the pastor deeply convicted him of his need for Christ. 
And so after the message, he made it a point he wanted to talk to the speaker in person. And so the speaker took Barnhouse's left hand, turned it palm up. And he said to him, this hand represents you. Then he took a hymn book and put it on his left hand. And he said, this hymn book represents your sin. The weight of sin, the entirety of it, is on you. And God hates sin, and God judges all sin, and his wrath must bear down against all sin, and his wrath is bearing down upon you. That's why you have no peace of conscience. That's why you have no assurance of salvation. The weight of your sin is crushing you. Then he took Barnhouse's right hand and said, let's let this represent Christ. So he turned his right hand, palm up. And he said, no sin in him, the perfect sinless son of God from all of eternity, pure and holy in every way. He is the beloved son, the father says, in whom I'm well pleased. And then the pastor took Barnhouse's left hand, went like that. So the book came down on the hand representing Christ, which was empty just moments ago. And he said, this is what happened when Jesus Christ took your place on the cross. He was the Lamb of God bearing away the sins of the world. And with Barnhouse, young 15-year-old still holding this hymn book, the pastor opened his Bible. And he said, I've got two passages I want to read to you. And the first one was 1 Peter chapter 2, 23 and 24, where Peter writes, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then he said, I want to turn your attention to Isaiah 53, to the verses that Peter is referring to. And he turned in his Bible to Isaiah 53 and read verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he turned to young 15-year-old Donald Barnhouse, and he said, so whose sins were laid on Jesus? There he is holding his hymn book in the right hand. Whose sins were laid on Jesus? Well, young Barnhouse said, our sins. Well, whose sins does that mean? The pastor asked. Mm, our sins, he said again. Yes, but whose sins are those? And Donald Barnhouse said, well, everybody's sins, your sins, my sins. The minute he said my sins, the pastor cut him off and said, that's it right there. My sins. That's what I wanted you to understand. That's what I want you to say. Say it again. My sins. Say it again. My sins. And then the pastor took him back to Isaiah 53, 6, and he put the book back in Barnhouse's left hand, the hymn book. And pressing down on the hymn book, as he read, 
He read, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Barnhouse came to faith in Christ. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I've said all of that to get to Rahab. Because this theology underlies what transpires in the book of Joshua. Grace is illustrated in her life. If anybody is undeserving of salvation, she would be at the top of the list somewhere. But she is delivered from wrath. She is delivered from the judgment of God. She is given life, not of her earning or of her merit. And so I want you to notice the text. This is from Joshua chapter 6. Starting in verse 17, it's speaking about Jericho. And it says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Everybody else is going away in judgment. It's over for them. There's no more opportunity. It's done. But only Rahab and her family gathered with her in the house shall live. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. She wasn't saved because of works. We're going to look at by faith next week, where Hebrews says it was by faith she did what she did. So when you have true faith, it shows up in action. So it wasn't the action per se. It was the fact that faith was living in her heart, and it was evidenced then by what she did. And we'll see how she came to faith when we look at uh, her story next week. So Rahab is rescued. Verse 20, but here's what happened to everybody else. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And here's the judgment. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Verse 17, Rahab was spared. How do you think she sang Amazing Grace? Amazing Grace. Or do you think she sang it a little bit differently? You think Grace got hold of her? You think it meant something to her? I would say it did. So Rahab is given new life, but that's not the end of it. That's not the end of Grace. She's spared from judgment, but she becomes part of the family of God, of all things. And I want you to notice this. This is in Joshua 6 and verse 25. It says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all that belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And the writer of the book, perhaps it was Joshua himself, makes this statement. And she has lived in Israel to this day. She's still living. I know her address. I know her cell phone number. You can email her if you want to. All right, she's still living among us to this day. Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Her faith was genuine, evidenced by her works, as James would put it. She becomes part of the family of God. That's offensive to self-righteous people. Because religion is for moral folks, isn't it? I mean, who is church for? It's for nice people like us, as we imagine ourselves to be. 
But that's like saying we build hospitals for the benefit of doctors and nurses and x-ray technicians. Why do we build hospitals? It's for the sick, the injured, the needy, and the dying. Church is for sinners. It's not to be a cozy club of the self-righteous. That's not church. It's to be a place of welcome and refuge for sinners who need the grace of God, and then once you've experienced it, to have opportunity to express it and to live it out in any number of ways. And so Rahab becomes part of the family of God, but that's not the end of grace. It's abounding. It's amazing. She soon married, we discover, a member of the tribe of Judah. And not just anybody, but one of the princes of the tribe of Judah. And in that regard, here's what we read in Matthew chapter 1, where there's a big, long, massive genealogy. And we're going to jump into the middle of the genealogy, verse 5. So there's her husband's name, Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, by the way, she was another pagan who was converted, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of all things of King David. You look at this list. Rahab gave birth to a son. His name was Boaz. She had a grandson, Obed. She had a great-grandson, Jesse. She had a great-great-grandson, King David. You talk about amazing grace. I mean, only God does something like that. And you keep reading. We're not going to read the rest of the genealogy. There's a whole lot of names there. But you get down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Jesus in the family tree of Rahab of all people. Are you stunned by that? Is that amazing to you? Here, a converted pagan Amorite prostitute in the direct relation to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. That's grace. I don't know how else to define it. If you don't see grace here, I don't know how else to explain it to you. This is grace. Rich, abundant, amazing, overflowing, matchless, saving. I mean, you can add a whole lot of adjectives to that. Dead in sin, but God gives life. God gives salvation. An outcast and an alien, but God in grace grants exaltation and he grants a place of honor. This is the message of Lent. This is the message of the Christian faith. This is why we come on a Sunday and we sing like we do because grace has grabbed hold of us and won't let go. Let me finish with a, with a story. Uh, Walter uh, Wangren Jr., uh, my wife enjoys reading his book, she's put me on to, to several of them. He's a, he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. Uh, he died just a handful of years ago back in, uh, in 2021. Uh, but in one of his books, uh, he tells the story from the late 1950s uh, when his father, uh, Walter Sr., was the president of Concordia College in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And uh, what Walter had been doing, it was wintertime, 
And uh, he and his buddies had been uh, throwing stones at the powerful floodlights that surrounded the outdoor hockey rink there on the campus. He had been told not to, but he kept at it. And he was such a poor shot that he always missed until he didn't. And there was a shower of glass from striking one of those 6,000-watt floodlights. And young Walter did not know what to do, but he made his buddies swear that you'll never tell. I mean, you got to promise me. And so they promised him, and so he went home with the secret festering in his heart. Well, he kept the secret, or as he tells the story, it kept him is the way he puts it. It kept him, he says, from looking his father in the face. It kept him from conversations around the dinner table. It kept him from wanting his, to hear his father call him by name. His dad had an affectionate nickname for him, he tells in the story. That nickname was Avi. And so as he relates the story, as his dad would call him by that nickname, Avi, he said, it almost seemed to me like blasphemy is the way he puts it. Well, his father came into the bedroom to say goodnight, and he said, goodnight, Avi. And young Walter Jr. turned his face to his pillow, and he said to his father, don't call me that. And when his father asked him why not, young Walter just began to cry into his pillow, didn't say a thing. Well, he knew what he needed to do the next day. Uh, he had to come clean. He had to make his confession. He had to take his punishment. And so the next day, he rather slowly made his way to the administration building on campus. And to a young boy, that place exuded power and authority, um, impressiveness, weightiness, all of those things, he made his way slowly to the administration building. He, of course, knew where his dad's office was. And he said to a young boy, that door to my dad's office seemed huge. It was dark. It was foreboding. And so he pushed the door open, and there was his dad seated importantly behind a giant desk. Well, his father said, here's what he writes. Yes, I said slowly as I inched toward the desk. Um, I, I, well, you know those 6,000-watt bulbs at the rink? Well, I guess I sort of broke one. And then the whole story with tears and sobbing just came flooding out, the whole story. And he said when he finished... The story, his father rose slowly from the chair. And he stepped with great presidential dignity around the desk. And Walter writes this, Walter Wangren writes this, the world grew small and silent, only the two of us lived in it. And so he said, I knew the spanking that was coming. I knew I deserved it. I knew the world needed it in order to be made right again. And he said, I was totally unprepared for what happened next. He said, my father knelt on the floor in front of me, reached out his arms, 
and then drew me in with an embrace and hugged me like a precious treasure. And he said over and over, just very quietly, he whispered to me, Avi, Avi, Avi. And he finishes his story with this sentence, in that moment, I saw the face of God. Grace alone. What does John write? We all know John 3.16. What does John 3.17 say? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Dead in trespasses and sins, guilty and undone, deserving of punishment. But God so loved the world that he gave, gave over to sacrifice in grace his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. That was the story of Jericho, wasn't it? Rahab believed. She did not perish. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Grace alone. All of eternity, if you know the Lord, all of eternity will be far too short to adequately thank and praise him. Let's pray together. Lord, um, how lightly we can take the Christian faith. We're sinners, but we don't really think about what that actually means. We read about your judgment, but that's for somebody else. We read about the cross. We're familiar with it. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross and paid for sins. Yeah, nothing new there. But to realize that your grace is in every way utterly amazing. Because it reached out to each one here who trusts in you. Okay, so if it could reach me, if it could reach anybody in this room, well, then it can reach anybody. And so we're thankful for a grace that reaches to the lowest possible depths. We think of how Paul describes the dimensions of your love, length, breadth, height, depth, infinite. And that we have the privilege of being drawn into that love through the cross, through the finished work of Calvary. And as we receive for ourselves, as we trust in what you have accomplished, all things are made new, new creation. And so, Lord, uh, this day, if there are those that are outside your grace, where grace is a building we come into on a Sunday, where grace is a word that's in a song that we sing glibly, uh, where grace is one of those concepts on a confirmation page, whatever it is, Lord, that your grace would grab hold of and revolutionize each of us from the inside out. Thank you that our sins weighing down upon us, transferred to Christ, you've laid on him the iniquity of us all, and we bear it no more. We give you thanks and praise for Jesus' sake. Amen.